Here y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, back by the woodpile. Fun counter guy, thanks for stopping by. Back in the late 1980s, a little magazine began to be passed around by discouraged and disenfranchised, music-loving, truth-seeking believers on the back pews of churches. The mag was called True Tunes, and what it did was send up a flare to those folks who were looking for music with meaning and integrity, both of which, unfortunately, for many, did not exist in the mainstream Christian music industry of the times. The visionary of the publication was a fellow by the name of John J. Thompson, a guy who has been back by the woodpile several times before to talk about some of the music he championed in his magazine's pages. But this time around, John tells us the story, the rise, the fall, and possible resurrection of True Tunes. And I should apologize, while we were interviewing, I had a bit of a cold, and so I mumble and wheeze more than usual. I'm sorry. I think I was in high school and I was searching for you know, music that was positive or Christian but not corny and cheesy and I don't remember how but somebody gave me a copy of a little newspaper that you put out called True Tunes right. and it blew me away and it was all the stuff I was looking for and to this day I mean I'm still listening to, to groups there's still thought processes that are in my head that came from that paper so you're the guy who started it all. And, uh, <laughs> well, no, that... I'm the guy that took it from other people that started it. Oh, okay, it. okay. Yeah, I definitely didn't start much. So you I had appreciate it. that, and I never get tired of hearing people. <clears throat> it's funny. It was a such a big deal to such a small number of people. Mm. And um, it's easy to forget that when you're you know in the middle of the bullseye. And when you experience both the, the up and the downside of it, you know, I still regularly meet people who are like, oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I met some people who are current CCM artists doing Christian music that's on the radio and they tell me that they started doing something different and it was because of True Tunes that they heard about that. I've met people who are in, you know, not at all in Christian music and they the same thing. It was like they were inspired by groups like Mark Hurd and mm-hmm. the 77s and stuff and they heard about it at True Tunes. Well, you know, what's interesting is that and now I, I've got the benefit of hindsight. I'm kind of in an interesting age uh, I guess Gladwell talks about, you know, um, he doesn't necessarily believe in genius, but there's like, were you born at the right time to be in the proximity of an opportunity? Did you have people in your life that would allow you to have access to that opportunity? Did you have the resources you need in order to be useful in that opportunity? And so now I look back and go, oh, okay, so I'm younger than the Jesus movement people. My mom was part of that. So my mom came to faith in the early 70s when I was just two or three years old. And for folks who may not be familiar, the Jesus music was basically like, like the hippies that... Yeah, it was a it was a massive... Ma- I mean, it made the cover of Time or Newsweek magazine. It was a big revival that happened uh, towards the end of the 60s and into the 70s where millions of young people were turning to a decidedly dressed-down version of Christianity. They were responding after the free love, drugs, sex, hippie thing, they were responding to the person of Jesus that was presented to them as this countercultural, love-focused person.
person. And so millions of young people were becoming Christians and getting baptized in these mass baptisms in the ocean. And the nexus of this movement was Southern California with pockets in the Midwest and in London, actually. There's books now, there's scholarly books on it, and there's accessible books on it. And, and it was really the movement that started very innocently, this idea of, well, let's just take these guitars. Yesterday we were singing songs about cars and girls. Today we're going to sing about Jesus. And so these very simple faith-based folk, rock, blues, pop songs started to come out of this scene. So groups like Love Song, there was this kind of psychedelic blues band called The Excursions. There was a, you know early metal kind of group called Agape. These things were coming out in the late 60s. There was also the folk music, which was still huge and very like commercially viable. People now forget, like if you were doing acoustic guitar ballads in 1967, that was like Bruno Mars today. That was hip, top 40, yeah. the kids loved it kind of music. And that music was perfect for mm -hmm. Christian messages because it was all about the lyric. It was all about emotion. It was all about social commentary mm -hmm. and soul searching. And it wasn't, you know, the, the, the top 40 pop kind of music of the day. It was right. the more deep stuff. So it lent itself perfectly to, to that stuff. So Larry Norman and Randy Stonehill and um, John Fisher and, you know, Chuck Gerard, who was in Love Song, was in the Hondells. And so, he, you know, he had a hit song about his car and then he gets saved has this salvation experience and is going to a Bible study and he's basically learning and the, the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and then turning around and converting that into songs. Mm -hmm. And not only is there music that comes from this very organically, not at all contrived. Mm -hmm. It was just a genuine reflection, but there's also now an audience for it. And so a big event happened in Dallas in 1972 called Explo 72, where uh, I think it was Campus Crusade for Christ, a college evangelical college missions oriented, uh, I think it was Campus Crusade, but it was one of those things. They had a conference in Dallas and it exploded, like it was called Explosive, but, but hundreds of thousands of people showed up, way more than they expected. And there's a stage and there's Johnny Cash playing along with Larry Norman. Um, I think Chris Christofferson might've been there. So there was mainstream artists who were Christians. There was these new Jesus music artists playing. Andre Crouch was there, who was a gospel artist, but also was at the front end of the integration of black and white music. And it was this huge thing. And when, when some people saw 200,000 or 250,000 college students gathered in a city responding to this music, the ideas start to go, oh, there's a market for this. And now the record labels started to look for artists like Randy Matthews and sign them. And uh, Word Records started Murr. And um, they started to try to do this contemporary music, which was still very radical in the church. And especially, and I'm only now realizing living in the South for 10 years, like still how radical it was for these guys to do acoustic folk music in the 60s compared to what they were doing with Southern Gospel at the time. Mm -hmm. 
So that was the Jesus movement. My mom, her Episcopal, good Midwestern girl faith evolved into a personal pursuit of a relationship with God through Jesus in in that format in about 72 or 73 when I was two or three years old. And so all of a sudden there's this music in the house, artists like Honey Tree and Evie and a little bit of Larry Norman uh, because he had one song, Rapture song called I Wish We'd All Been Ready that I, I, that I remember that one. Life was filled with guns and war and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Children the days grew cold a piece of bread could buy a bag of gold i wish we'd all been ready there's no the good news circle my mom loved melodic sweet pretty music now our life was a nightmare at that point in time so i can also as an adult realize why she gravitated towards Sweet music. She didn't need rock and roll. She didn't need anything adding any edge to her <laughs> life. Her life was all edge, you're right. Yeah. So I was young, though. Like, I'm the next generation. So I am kind of born at just the right time so that in the early 80s, as the industry, the Christian music industry has kind of its first wave of of uh, existence, its first 10 years is behind it, and now it's kind of becoming an actual industry. And I'm there responding to music mostly that was older and looking for that kind of authenticity again because the early stuff was just there was nobody doing it for the money there was nobody doing it for fame because you were guaranteed to be have arrows coming at you from both sides of the fence and that's to me rock and roll so i just responded to music that to me felt truthful and i hated from as long as i can remember if music felt like it was selling me something or it was lying to me or if it was especially objectifying women i just viscerally hated it and i still do i mean people my friends and my kids sometimes tease me because the quickest way to get me go on a rant is to start to talk about Def leopard or kiss or something because oh, like yeah. it's like music is way too important to be used as a date rape drug again i now realize Seeing what was happening to my mother, the abuse she was experiencing is, is obviously part of this stuff. At the time, I just felt righteous indignation. I didn't, I wasn't that self-aware. Right. <laughs> and I had one tape that my grandma had given me from DeGarmo and Key. It was their second album, Straight On. She gave it to me when I got baptized a couple years before this point. And I hadn't listened to it for a long time because she told me it was Christian. But then I listened to it when it was all I had and I fell in love with it. It was really, it's an amazing record. I still listen to it. It's a, it's a really, really good kind of spooky blend of prog rock and southern boogie. A lot of blues. One of my top ten favorite albums ever. But there's the songs on it were darker. Like there was songs that were saying living on the edge of dying and it wasn't shiny, happy Christian pop. It was like, this is a desperate situation, but we've got an idea of where you might find some hope. So I was feeling this music and thinking, 
gosh, this is like a lifeline to a planet that I want to live on. And to me, it wasn't Christian rock. It was just rock blues music that was talking to me about spiritual things, which other quote unquote secular music did too. I didn't realize it was a separate industry and a separate, you had to go to separate places to find it and all that stuff. So interestingly, I think because I was young enough to be younger than the Jesus music people who were part of that industry, but I was also too young to yet really know. And I was removed from the whole evangelical subculture for the most part. I didn't grow up in a church that had any kind of racist tendencies to say rock and roll was of the devil because it was jungle music. And I, mm-hmm. I didn't grow up in a, where I heard of Christian music as being sort of the safe alternative to real music. My mom didn't forbid me to listen to anything, but she would sometimes question some of what I was listening to. So I think I just happened to be this lynch, this right in this right little spot, this linchpin where I could introduce people that I thought, if this music means this much to me, there's got to be more people like me. And I want to know them. I want them to be my friends mm-hmm. because I don't understand the Van Halen kids and the Madonna kids. I don't understand mm-hmm. how music, this important thing, can be used for something so dumb and everybody's okay with that. I want to find the people that really take it seriously. And that was also Smiths fans and U2 fans. And it wasn't just Christian people. It was just people that were taking the music more seriously. The hippies that liked Bob Dylan, I understood a lot more than the yeah. 80s kids that were listening to Duran Duran. And there was a um, a radio station in Chicago that started playing from nine to midnight. They played really progressive Christian music, so metal and new wave and punk rock even and stuff. And so I started listening to that and calling DJ every night and talking to him and he would tell me. And I even would ask him for the address of bands if it was on the record and he would just give it to me over the phone. And I started writing letters to bands like the Altar Boys and the 77s and stuff like that. And whenever I got money or I had a birthday or whatever, I went found these records and I, I was amazed at how hard they were to find. Like you couldn't find them at the regular record stores and you couldn't find them at most Christian stores. And then I was also amazed that there were certain in Chicago, again, about being born in the right place. There was a concert promoter in Chicago that was bringing in cool bands. Like I now realize that was not the case in most cities. You couldn't go see Vector play in most cities. You couldn't go see the 77s and res band in a lot of cities. But in Chicago, we could. And so I started going to concerts as soon as I possibly could and as many as I possibly could. And I just, by the time I was 14 or 15, it was intuitive to me that there were more people like me. I saw them at the concerts. This music was too hard to find. And every time I had a friend just come over and I played them a record by the 77s, this is awesome but it wasn't you i couldn't tell them oh come over and listen to christian rock they would never want to do it and i never i wasn't even thinking of it as christian rock at first i thought of it as just another niche i just in did the math in my head and i was like man i want to find these people primarily honestly i now realize was because i needed that community i needed to be around people that didn't think i was a freak i wanted to hang out with people that wanted to have deep conversations too deep conversations about what this lyric meant or that lyric meant I wanted to meet the artists. You know, I really wanted to go backstage. I really wanted to 
to get to know Mike Knott and Mike Rowe and Terry Taylor and the choir guys and Mark Hurd. Like, and I was a super, super fan, but I was also starting to write songs. I was also wanting to be a practitioner. And so all of that just came together. And I feel like I was in the right city in Chicago because there was enough of a market because of these concerts coming through in this radio station playing music. Cornerstone Festival started the next year and I went to the first Cornerstone Festival. And at that point, that was 84, summer of 84, that was when it all clicked in my head. So I was just turning 14 years old and I literally came home from Cornerstone with a notebook and a pen and I wrote my manifesto of what I was going to do. I had a, a list and I, I, I analyzed the market. I didn't realize I was doing this, but I said, okay, who is the market for this music? Who wants this music? And I wrote all these like pages and pages of descriptions of the kind of people that, which was really essentially writing about myself, <laughs> you know, and I didn't realize it. And then I wrote, what is the music? Like what kinds of music are out there? Where can I find the music? What can I do? And then the, the question to me was that there's this canyon between the music and the potential audience for that music. And I remember talking to a certain artist who was one of my favorites, got, into, got to me and get his autograph, that kind of thing. And I wanted to know, what is your life like every day when you're not here? And it was a question that like probably this guy had not been asked before because he looked down and he's like, I give guitar lessons and I clean my dad's church. Really? And I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, I'm a janitor. <laughs> and I give guitar lessons sometimes, but mostly, yeah, mostly I'm a janitor. <laughs> Dude. I, I was struck, like, are you kidding me? Your hands that play the guitar that way are used to push a mop around the floor of a church? Like, that doesn't make any sense. You should be in a pagoda somewhere receiving signals from God and channeling it into rock and roll. Someone should bring you food every so often and then you emerge from your pagoda and you bless <laughs> us with your genius. Like, the idea that this guy was cleaning churches was shocking. And then I found out, well, it led me to have that conversation with a couple other people. And it would usually come down to, is this what you can do full-time? Have you figured out how to do this full-time? Every single one of them, no. <laughs> not, not, not even close. Mm -hmm. The only ones that were doing it full-time that I met at that point were Resban. And that was because they were from Japusa, the Jesus People USA, this community. And they were a ministry of the community. But even when they were off the road and they were back at Jesus People, they were working in the kitchen. They were working in all these. And that got my attention because I was like, now that could be cool. Like I, I, I really like that. But I just felt like there's not enough customers buying the records for these guys get to, to get to do it full time. My purpose, I really felt by the time I was 14, was to build a bridge over that canyon between the, the potential audience and those artists with every intention of eventually crossing that bridge myself. Like I wanted to be making that music and I would like to do it full time. I wanted to do some kind of ministry, youth ministry uh, kind of thing. But I wanted to do music, and I knew that if, if I didn't want to be mopping floors or having to work a day job, then I'm going to have to build a pretty good bridge. So that's what True Tunes was. I, I, I came up with the name. I came up with a logo before it ever existed, which was how we did it with our bands, too. It's like we make the logo first and then figure out what kind of music would make this logo. And... Uh, that was all when I was 14. And then I went around to all the Christian bookstores and, and within a, a couple miles, there was like six, I think, and within, a, uh, I don't know, 10 miles of my house in the suburbs in Chicago. And I went to every one of them. Now, they all knew me because I was a regular customer, always asking them for the records. They couldn't find special ordering stuff. I went to all of them the summer of 86, before I got my driver's license, though. So like the spring of 86. 
And I went and I offered them all the same deal. I said, I would like to work for you. And my demands are this. I want to make minimum wage, <laughs> which I thought was a demand. Yeah. I didn't understand how that worked. And I said, and I will do anything you want. I will clean the toilets. I will vacuum the floors. I will even sell precious moments figures, which to me was the, the, the big moral compromise. <laughs> but <laughs> I had a deep and abiding theological and aesthetic aversion to precious moments figures. I'll do anything. My conditions are you pay me minimum wage and you let me run your music department because I have a vision. And I said, if you let me do this, I guarantee whatever your music sales are now, I will double them in six months. Now again, 15 years old, almost. Yeah. <laughs> How in the world I came up with that? I have no idea. But I offered that deal to every Christian bookstore. They all, that I can recall, at least most of them said, John, we'll hire you in a heartbeat to be our stock boy to come in, but we're not going to let you run the music department. Why? Because I, mean, I was 15 years old. Oh. It was insane. Well, <laughs> I was like, like, now I look at it, I was like... Well, I mean, did they have somebody else? That was yeah, running? yeah, yeah. They all, oh, okay. every, every, every Christian bookstore had a music buyer, which was usually a part-time or maybe a full-time person, or it was the manager, but they would meet with the sales reps from the labels and they would, you know, order yeah, the music. I was ready to give you my music buyer. <laughs> you, you were so convincing. Well, that's the thing. And it's funny now when I put myself and I look back and I, especially if I look at pictures of myself when I'm 15 and I, you know, I'm so yeah. young, but I was so confident that this would work. All of the stores, or at least most of them, offered me a job but would not let me change what they were doing with the music. However, I won tickets to Cornerstone 85 by uh, beating Glenn Kaiser at Res Band Trivia on the Christian Rock radio station. And he's in them. He is Res Band. So Glenn Kaiser is the lead singer of Res Band. They were in the studio at WCRM, just guests, you know. And they asked a question... The question was, how many times has Res Band used a snoring sound on one of their songs? And I immediately, you had to do the thing where you dial six of the seven numbers and wait, and then when they ask the question, hit the seventh number so I could be the first caller. Mm. They put me on the air. We got John from Glen Ellen. Uh, so John, what's your answer? And honestly, right now at the top of my head, I can't remember what the answer was. I think it was four maybe. And Glenn goes, Oh no. I said, no, 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 I'm right. <laughs> and he was like, well, he goes, tell me the ones you're thinking of. And so I told him all four and there was one he had forgotten because when they put it on the record, they put it backwards. They like back masked it to make it this. It's a song elevator music, and there's this kind of sound. But I had read the liner notes, and I saw in the liner notes that that was... I knew that it was their manager or some guy with the band, Tom Cameron, who sometimes played harmonica, and would fall asleep in the studio, and they would record him snoring, and they used his snore. And, and Glenn was like, wow, you're right. I forgot that one. So What's their obsession with snoring? I don't know. I mean, when you're in a rock band, you got to entertain yourself. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, it was funny that I beat Glenn. He had forgotten one of the things. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I beat him at Res Band Trivia, and I won a ticket to Cornerstone 85, the whole thing. I'd gone to 84 with my youth pastor. I'd won a ticket to that as well. But now I, was, I got a ticket, but I had no way to get there. And so I called Jesus people, and I said, hey... I have one ticket. I'm looking for any youth groups from the suburbs that are going. I'm going to join their church and become a member of their youth yeah. group just so I can go to Cornerstone. And uh, they were like, okay. And they said, well, there's a guy in Wheaton that bought like 50 tickets or something. So that's probably a youth group. So they just gave me his name and number. And I called this guy. His name was Matt Wielgus. I called Matt. 
And I told him the whole story, and he said, oh, man, I want a ticket from WCRM, too. He goes, I'm driving up there to pick mine up. Do you want to come with me? I said, sure. And I somehow talked my parents into letting me go to Cornerstone with a group of complete strangers. It turns out it was a college ministry called The Happening, kind of a charismatic Catholic uh, college group that Matt was kind of a leader of or something. And he, had, he that's who it was. So I got to go to Cornerstone with all these cool, charismatic Catholic people. And my parents somehow let their 15-year-old kid do this, which is... This is not just one day. It's like over. Oh, it was like four days. Yeah. Like, so Matt and I were driving up to this radio station to pick up our tickets. And we were, I was just talking about music. And he was amazed at how much I knew about the music already. And I told him about my letters I'd gotten from some of the bands. And I told him about my whole manifesto. And he's like, well... He goes, this is interesting. He said, I'm the music buyer at this Catholic bookstore in Wheaton. He said, I'm going to college in the fall. Would you want to maybe come in and interview to take over my job? And I was like, yeah. And I didn't know his store because it was a Catholic store. And I didn't realize it had a music department because I knew the store. But it was like very obviously like priest garments and candles and books. And I didn't know that it had a music department. So I went and met with the owner and I interviewed with him. And I told him the same thing. I told everybody else, you know, let me do whatever I want with the music and I'll double your sales. And he's like, well, how do you feel about Catholic stuff? I said, well, as far as I can tell, it's pretty much like Episcopal stuff, but we don't have a Pope. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I said, there might be some things I don't understand and you'll have to tell me, but I don't mind it. And he said, okay. So I got the job the next following summer. So it was like almost a year later. And I got to manage the music department and I doubled the sales in six months. And then I doubled them again in, in another six months. And so by the summer of 87, I was a senior in high school. I started to refine this plan, this True Tunes plan. And I wrote a business plan in the summer of 87. It was like an 80-page business plan on a computer, which was fancy, and presented it to Phil Taschetta, who owned Wheaton Religious. And he agreed to finance the whole thing. And so um, we started the ball rolling. And by the spring of 89, June of 89, we opened up True Tunes. We built the brand and we did some events and we did all kinds of stuff. And we started a little magazine that was like a mail order catalog. And I put some record reviews in it and stuff. It was first a mail order thing. Yeah. Okay. And it was funny because Phil Taschetta, my boss at Wheaton Religious, he would have schedule me to work every Thursday night. Well, after a year or so, the word started to spread amongst collectors and people like me around the world that there was a new place you could get music. Mm -hmm. Well, Wheaton Religious had a mail order department already built. So they knew how to take orders over the phone. They knew how to ship stuff. They had all that. I, could, I was doing that all day long. But every Thursday, the phone would start ringing. And I would end up spending my half of my shift from 6 to 9 o'clock on the phone. Sometimes there would be three, four calls holding. People calling long distance when that was still a thing. And they were just wanting me to tell them what new music was out. And then they would order whatever I told them. Based on what they liked, mm -hmm. I would suggest things that they would place an order. Wow. And so Phil was looking at it. And one point on a Thursday night after we were closing, he's like, hey, come here. Let's, let me talk to you about something. He's like, I just tracked. And he goes, you, you had like 25, 30 calls tonight. Every one of them placed an order. And you were talking to each one about different music based on what they liked. He's like, that's not a very efficient way to do this. He said, we got a fax machine. Like, what if you wrote down every week the stuff that you were, the new music that came out and what you recommended, just hand wrote a thing and faxed it to these people. Then they could just call and place the order yeah. and you'd get more orders in a night. And I was like, okay. So I started to hand write record reviews and news updates, just little pen and paper. 
And sometimes I drew little pictures and stuff. I wish I had one of those, but fax paper did not age well. Uh And then you could set the fax machine. Like if people called, I could say, do you have access to a fax? And if they did, I could set it to automatically send it to 50 people or 100 people. And then the list started to grow. So every Thursday you know, afternoon, I would send this fax out to all these people. And then the phone would start to ring. But anybody can answer the phone now and take the orders. It didn't have to be me. And we did some events where we would invite people to come on Thursday nights to listen to records really loud in the store. And artists would come into town and they'd come in and sign autographs and that kind of stuff. So we did that at Wheaton Religious and kind of primed the pump so that when we opened up True Tunes, we had this. So this kid comes into the store a lot. His name was Greg Sylvester. And, and he worked at the print shop in town. And so he said, hey, I can show you how to make halftone scans of these album covers. And maybe we could make a cool little magazine. So... He would, I would give him tape covers and record covers and he would scan them and then we'd get the exacto blades out and cut it up and put it on this special paper and we could, we designed these things, we called them Magalogs. It was mostly a mail order catalog with a handful of reviews at the front and back. And Greg helped lay that out and taught me how to do that kind of stuff. And then, you know, Wheaton Religious was already making video catalogs and so again, I could learn how to print those things because of Wheaton Religious already knowing how to do that. So we started to do this thing we just called True News, and it was or True Tunes News. It was called different things at different times, a little small thing. And we would just get people's addresses, and then about every couple months, we would put a new one out. And then as soon as it hit people, the, the phone would start to ring, and people would start ordering stuff, because we were focusing on music that they couldn't find other places. And that's how True Tunes really got on the map nationally. Greg came to me, Greg Sylvester. This would have been this winter of 89, and he said, hey, I think I'm going to take this new class in college, College of DuPage. It's called desktop publishing, where you can use a computer to do all this stuff instead of exacto blades and halftone scans and blue line paper. And he goes, but the class is going to cost this much and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I have to do a project for my class. So I was thinking, why don't we t- do a magazine that, like, looks like a really good magazine instead of this little, you know, cheapo thing. And um, he said, I'll do the design for my class credit if you can pay to print it. So the first issue of True Tunes, it had David Mullen on the cover. David was a guy on Warner Brothers Records who did this kind of really cool, soulful, bluesy, mainstream feeling rock. And the inset was The Alarm, which was this Welsh band that we talked about before. I loved The Alarm. And they were a great example of a band that was a True Tunes kind of band. They're not Christian music per se, but they're dealing with the spiritual kind of questions and stuff. And um, so I wrote the articles and Greg did the layout and it looked really good. We compared it to Rolling Stone and Spin and other magazines and tried to make it as legit as we could. Mike Knott from, uh, at that point, he was in a band called Lifesavers. Um, he was one of, one of my favorite artists and he started a little punk kind of alternative label. He called me and said, hey, could I put an ad in this magazine? And I was like, oh. That's an interesting idea. I never thought of that. Like, how does that work? And he's like, I give you money and you put the ad in there. And I was like, okay, how much will you pay me? And he's like, oh, 500 bucks. Yeah, I'll take 500. That would be great. <laughs> Literally, we're yeah. just figuring this out as we go. And so Blonde Vinyl was his label. They put an ad in the first issue. And then I called a couple other labels and I said, hey, most of them would basically give 
free product in exchange for yeah. the ads. And then I had to sell the product in order to make the money. But still, it helped cover the cost of printing the thing, which was expensive. We took the first issue of True Tunes, the first real issue, to Cornerstone 89, which was also around when we launched True Tunes. And we gave it away for free mm-hmm. in exchange for a mailing address. Physically, was it a newspaper or was it a glossy magazine? Actually, at first it was a newspaper. Okay. It was a bifold, they would call it. You know, so it was newsprint, but it was color on the front, and then the inside was mostly black and white. And then, like the center spread might have been color. It was all complicated, like what you could right. print color and which. Um, so at first it was newsprint, and I think the first you know five or six issues were newsprint, and then we were able to upgrade it to uh, color, and then eventually you know flat, large format flat. We came home from Cornerstone '89 with close to 10,000 names and addresses. So you had that many to give out? Because when you're printing it, it's like 10,000 costs this much. 20,000 costs five more dollars. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and so we printed like 15 or 20,000 copies and we we gave 10,000 away at Cornerstone and then we had them in the store and we took them to concerts in Chicago and stuff. And it was a hit, like immediately a hit. And now we had all these addresses and our philosophy was we're not going to charge people for this. We're going to send this out for free because we knew that when we did, people would call and place orders. Mm-hmm. And so that the catalog was still integrated into the magazine. And we did an issue with Mike, not on the cover, we did an issue with this like obscure industrial band from Texas called Deatophobia was on the cover of oh. one of them. It was definitely like way left of anything CCM or Christian music. Uh, but e- each issue would have artist interviews, record reviews, and a little commentary by me. I ended up writing most of what was in it, especially at first, and I just came up with fake names. I had all these alternative ideas. Oh, so it was all you? It was mostly me. I mean, there were a couple of real people, but um, <laughs> yeah, it was mostly me. And then in... I don't remember what year it was, but uh, we, we evolved to the color format that it got bigger and bigger. And then um, every issue, we pretty much would cover the cost of printing and shipping it through advertising. What did you do if you got sent a record by a band maybe that you had liked, but maybe it wasn't very good? Oh, yeah, that was something we decided, I decided very early on, that we were going to tell the truth. We were going to find a way, and I grew up reading Spin and Rolling Stone and different magazines that would do actual critical reviews. And I liked to listen to a radio station in Chicago called WXRT that, that was a pretty progressive radio station. And they had some features where people would review music like late at night and stuff. I believed, because essentially my whole business was based on customer service, like, the whole thing lived or died on customers trusting our advice. So there was no way. The word was everything. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, we had a policy where if, if I recommended a record to you and you didn't like it, you could bring it back and trade it for something else. Mm-hmm. We almost never had anybody do that. But we did a few times. But That reminds um, me. I got a record in the car. I need to, to, 
I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, you go. There was another magazine that I, there were friends of mine and it was hugely influential that came before us called The Syndicate. It was called Harvest Rock Syndicate. Harvest Productions was the company that was promoting shows in Chicago that I talked about. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Paul Emery and, and Brian Quincy Newcomb, they brought in the cool bands. They were why I was able to get excited about this music in the first place. And they put a magazine together and Quincy, who's an amazing writer still to this day, Quincy would do really funny tear-ups of bad CCM records, like Carmen records and stuff. He would just <laughs> rip them apart, and it was really funny. But that wasn't what I felt called to do. Like, In fact, most of my readers, we did some surveys. They didn't know anything about anything that we didn't talk about. So frankly, if we didn't review Carmen, Carmen didn't exist right. to our readers. These were not CCM right. Christian bookstore people. These were people who were kind of like me. Mm -hmm. And so... We decided that we would do critical reviews, tell the truth, strengths and weaknesses of records, not just saying everything's great. But if a record was just terrible and it was a band that nobody cared, we just ignored it. Right. But if it was a band that was from our scene, that our people liked, part of our tribe, or if it had been advertised and promoted and then we felt like, eh, I don't think you guys are going to like this, mm -hmm. we would say it. And that, that the most famous in our little world version of that was Mike Knott and Blonde Vinyl had put out this record by a group called Dance House Children, uh -huh. which was Jason and Ronnie Martin. They had um, actually, Dance House Children had done a couple of records. This was a side project called Rainbow Rider. And I listened to it and it was like, huh, I don't get this at all. And then the liner notes were this weird manifesto that, that uh, Ronnie had written about how they were going to change the face of music and how amazing it was and how genius it was. And in the picture, he had like a Daniel Amos album and other stuff sitting around him. And I was like, he thinks he's as good as that. Now, I think a lot of what he was saying was posturing and was kind of sarcastic, but I didn't get it at the time. And so I wrote a review of it myself that basically said, hey, this record is terrible. And... <laughs> If you think it's going to be this or that or whatever, it's not. I don't understand what it is, but it's not good. And the liner notes, especially, I kind of mentioned it was like a little bit arrogant and whatever. Well, Ronnie, yeah, Ronnie wrote a letter to True Tunes. He was so offended by the review, and, and I printed the letter. It was a letter to the editor. You know? I printed it, and it, it kind of like, I think he was embarrassed <laughs> that he had written the letter and that, uh -huh. and that I printed it. And so Cornerstone comes around, and I see him, and it's like, I got to talk to him yeah. and we're standing there talking and it was totally cool. He was like, yeah, I shouldn't have sent you that letter. And I said, yeah, I should have probably not printed it. And maybe I, I guess I should have talked to you before I wrote the review, but this is kind of like, it's weird because of like, I got customers and, mm -hmm. but he, he understood where I was coming from and we're standing there talking and these, these people are like standing in a circle and they think we're fighting. They, uh -huh. they think, Oh, this is where Thompson and Ronnie Martin are going to fight. And, and I, I can't remember if it was me or him that would notice that this crowd was building around us. I'm like, we should fight. Like, we should totally mm -hmm. pretend fight. So we, like, tussled for a minute. And then, sure enough, somebody the next day, I heard that you got in a fight with Ronnie <laughs> but, but Mike was not happy. Mike Knott was not happy with the review because he was like, I paid for an ad for that thing. And I'm like, well, my first priority yeah. is our brand's integrity with our customers. So that set us apart in the industry because most Christian magazines didn't do negative reviews at all. And Syndicate did negative from a different perspective than we did. But our, our thing was, was unique and it was customer-based. It wasn't industry-based. I didn't care what 
the record labels thought eventually because I knew that when I said, okay, everybody, now that I had a, a, a base of whatever it was, 10, 20, 30,000 people, I'm like, here's a new project from the 77s. And this is what it sounds like. And you all, if you don't know the 77s, you got to trust me. This is an amazing record. And I remember when Drowning with Land in Sight came out and we sold thousands, 2,000, 2,500 so copies of a record that worldwide sold 20,000 or 25,000. And a lot of people, that was their first encounter with that band. And they trusted our our advice. So that to me was always sacred. That was the most important thing. And then we started to also bring bands into Chicago and fill, because Harvest Productions had gone away. So we started to promote some shows, which led to eventually the store opening up a concert venue on the second floor. So we had a club of our own that bands played in. And so we had the record store, we had the mail order company, we had a magazine, we had the concert venue. And I even started a little indie label on the side because every so often friends would have records that were done, but they didn't know how to get them distributed. And I came up with a way to get it distributed. And so by 1994, 93, 94, 95, it was like, if you were into this blurry world of like, is it Christian? Is it me? Is it you? Where you two is our prime role model? Yeah. <laughs> like, the, uh, if you were into that, then True Tunes was definitely at the center of coalescing that tribe. And the whole thing was all about me making friends with people who were, were like me. I, the best compliment I ever got from somebody at Cornerstone, because, you know, first year at Cornerstone of the first Cornerstone, I'm 13 years old, almost 14, in the front row watching mm-hmm. the 77s. And by 94, I'm up on the stage, main stage, like introducing bands and uh, making announcements and promoting stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and one, one guy said, you know what I love about seeing you up on stage at Cornerstone is that you're like us. Like, you're the fan who snuck backstage and made it to the stage. You never come off like you're the cool artist. Like, you're one of us. Mm-hmm. You're just one of us that got up there. And I, I was like, that's, I got to remember that. Like, that's important because yeah. that is what I am. I'm just the kid that snuck backstage. Yeah, you give hope to the rest of us nerds. <laughs> exactly. We're going to put a bookmark there for the time being, but John will be back here soon to finish his story. In the meantime, if you want to hear more about some of the music True Tunes was devoted to, you might check out In the Corner Back by the Wood Pile, episodes 78. 83 and 97, all of which John waxes awesomely about such groups as the 77s, Tony OK, The Alarm, Mr. Mister, and others. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Counter Guy. You can send us an email via SpunCounterGuy at hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and podbean.com. Peace and chicken grease.